Thank you, choir. Great words. The King is coming. Always something to have in the back of our mind at all times, knowing that day is coming. Uh, I do invite you uh, to turn to Genesis chapter 45, and we will read the entire chapter, verses 1 through 28. And I'll just very quickly give you the background. We've kind of been going through this for a while now, but uh, back, going back to chapter 37, Joseph was sold by his brothers uh, into uh, servanthood or slavery and, and got sent off to Egypt. And now Joseph is the second in command in Egypt, uh, second only to Pharaoh. And in fact, in many ways, uh, he runs the country and Pharaoh just kind of goes off of what Joseph says. Uh, well, uh, a famine came and Joseph knew this was going to happen. In fact, he interpreted a dream for Pharaoh saying this very thing. And, and so the famine is happening now. We're a couple years into it and the brothers, his brothers who sold him into slavery have come to buy food and, and Joseph tested them. He sent them back once with some food and, and was doing some things and, and messing with them a little bit. Well, they had to come back for more food and, and he's given them another test and in this one, he set up Benjamin. Now, Benjamin is, is their father's favorite child now that Joseph is supposedly gone. Jacob thinks uh, Joseph is dead. Uh, and, but, and, and Benjamin comes to Egypt, and Joseph uh, sets it up so that he can trap Benjamin and make Benjamin his slave, and he'll have to stay in Egypt. Well, uh, as this happens... Uh, the brothers are upset. They've turned from these greedy, selfish guys into now people that actually care about others. And Judah makes this great plea uh, for Benjamin and, and for their father. In fact, uh, right at the end of chapter 44, uh, you'll see uh, Judah saying, how can I go back to my father if, if Benjamin is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Um, and it was just this great plea of Judah. Let Benjamin go. I'll take his place. In fact, let all my brothers go. I'll, I'll bear the, the, the punishment and let them all go. It was a great plea that Judah uh, had made. And that's where we pick up the story then, just after uh, Judah makes this plea. One thing I will just note in here, you'll notice the word uh, Jacob, or the name Jacob and Israel interchanged. That is the same guy. Uh, he just has two different names at this point. But let's pick up the story as Judah finishes his plea for uh, Benjamin, their father, and actually the rest of the family. Genesis chapter 45, I'll begin at verse 1. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. It is, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. 
And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you, for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this, load your beasts, and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fats of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and he gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provisions for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of the land of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob. And they told him, Joseph is still alive, and he is ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, the spirits of their father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. The word of the Lord. One of the uh, great literary devices, and it, it's been used uh, in countless uh, books, uh, old radio shows and movies and TVs. It's, it's always this, this twist. A lot of it is, is the, the mysteries, the whodunit thing, but, but that twist... Well, the story's going along and things don't make sense and all of a sudden, oh, 
Something gets revealed and now things start to make sense and you figure out who did it. You know, anywhere from uh, Shakespeare to Scooby-Doo, we get that. The, the twist and then, oh, now I see. Now in the story of, of Joseph, we've known all along who Joseph is. But remember, his brothers didn't recognize him. And so let's try to see this thing unfold from the brothers' eyes here, from their point of view. They have called Joseph dead, probably thinking, well, he probably is dead. Um, he's often been referred to as he is no more. Um, the brothers saying, well, we sold him and he just is gone and we don't know where he is. Maybe as good as dead. It doesn't, we don't know. But he's out there. And as they've come to Egypt, they've been dealing with this Egyptian guy. In fact, Egyptian royalty. He speaks the Egyptian language and he's dressed like an Egyptian guy and, and he acts like an Egyptian. He said he practices divination, which Joseph most likely, probably, uh, absolutely did not practice, but he said he practiced it just to, to put on the show. He's this Egyptian guy. He's got an Egyptian name, Zephenath Pania, and that's what everyone's been calling him in front of the brothers. Uh, he's seen as an Egyptian, and through this, Joseph has been testing them. But as I mentioned, Judah gives that great speech in verse 44, and it breaks Joseph. The ruse is over, and he admits uh, who he is. They've passed the final test, if you will. They've proven themselves selfless, that they have changed. And the reunion becomes official, if I can use that word. And we see that in the first three verses as he reveals himself. And, and we have to think, what are the, the brothers thinking? You know, he, here's this guy, Egyptian guy. He's been mean to them. When they first showed up, he was kind of harsh with them. In fact, threw him in prison for three days. He kept Simeon hostage. Well, then all of a sudden he was really nice to them and gave them this great big feast and, and now they're back and he's, he's mean again because Benjamin apparently uh, stole his cup, which Benjamin didn't do. He was set up and, and here's this guy. He goes back and forth. They're probably thinking, we got a loose cannon on our hands here. What is this guy all about? And then Judah gives this speech, and, and then he tells everybody to get out of the room except the brothers, and then he breaks down and cries. These guys are probably thinking, this guy's a nut. We got a lunatic here. What is this? But then it gets even more inexplicable. The man says, I'm Joseph. I'm Joseph, your brother. And then right away, is my father still alive? In verse 3, well, Judah had just said his brother is still alive, but Judah had kind of painted this almost terrifying picture of, of their father's frail health. Look, if we don't bring Benjamin back, that's going to be enough to kill him. I mean, he's, he's an old man, and then that will do him in. And, and so Joseph, he gets a little concerned. Is he still alive? I mean, how, how sick is he? Or what, it, it, can he make it here? Well, he asks that question, and the brothers, they can't even answer. It, it says they're dismayed, and probably they're thinking, uh-oh, 
here's Joseph. Uh, is he thinking revenge at this point? Because when you think about it, he has the power to do anything he wants. He can say, you know what, Benjamin, you come with me. You and I are going to go back to Dad. And the rest of these guys, we'll just destroy them. He's got the power to do it. And so they're dismayed. And I'm sure very fearful. And, and in fact, Joseph has to repeat in verses, starting in verse uh, 4 and then all the way through 15, he, he's, he's repeating this. So I'm Joseph. They're just dumbfounded. And then he, I'm the one you sold into Egypt. He can tell them the story. He's leaving no doubt. I'm that one you sold into Egypt. And, and then in verse 5 he said, but don't be distressed or angry. And we wonder as Joseph looks you know, into their faces and sees their eyes, what's the most common uh, uh, emotion that he's seeing? Is it fear? Is it guilt? Probably a, a combination of that. But don't be distressed. Don't fear. Don't worry. And don't carry the guilt. Don't be angry with yourselves about what has happened here. And then he mentions why. And in fact, he mentions four times why they shouldn't uh, feel guilty. God has sent me. Don't be distressed. God has sent me here. In verse 5, he tells his brothers, God sent me to preserve life. In verse 7, God sent me to preserve a remnant, to keep alive many survivors. In verse 8, it was not you, but God. In verse 9, God has made me Lord over all Egypt. God is the one that brought me here. And then we'll just have to pause before we get to the rest of the story and take a I don't know, Rod Sterling, Twilight Zone type little pause here. And if I could do the impersonation, I would. Uh, but but just, just stop to, to see where we're at and, and to point out something that's important here. In fact, there's a couple things that we're going to come back to, uh, but we do want to finish out the story. Uh, but we want to note here the sovereignty of God. Joseph is adamant about that. And we've been stressing this throughout as we've gone week to week with this story, the sovereignty of God. But also he mentions this remnant, to preserve a remnant. And scripture is always clear that God is preserving uh, his people, a people for him. And Joseph stresses uh, these points. And as I mentioned, we'll come back to them but if I were Rod Sterling, we'd go to a commercial break and then come back to the story. But since there's no commercials here, we'll just finish out the story and then uh, remember these points as we get to the end. And so uh, Joseph continues, uh, starting at verse 9. Tell Dad to come here. Go home and get Dad. And he says, do not tarry. And then verse 11, uh, there's still five more years of, of famine. And, and Joseph, it seems when you read it closely, he's got this almost underlying fear that Jacob might be a little reluctant to come. And so he's very adamant, don't wait. We, there's, it's going to get worse, so he's got to come. Bring him here. And in verse 12, he said, your eyes see me. And, and better yet, Benjamin sees me. 
And, and Joseph isn't trying to be mean here, but I, I kind of find a little humor in what he's saying there. Because when you look at it, what he's saying, look, dad might not believe you guys. And there's probably a good reason why he wouldn't believe you guys. But he'll believe Benjamin. He likes Benjamin. He'll believe Benjamin. And, and so if he doesn't believe you, have Benjamin talk to him. Benjamin is looking right at me. And he'll believe him. And you notice in that speech, starting in verse 3, uh, Joseph starts by asking, is my father still alive? And at the end of the speech, in verse 13, he mentions his father. Get our father here. There are a couple of curious notes in this. In verses uh, 14 and 15, you'll notice that Joseph weeps on Benjamin's neck, and Benjamin weeps on Joseph's neck, and Joseph weeps on his brother's necks, but you never see that the brothers weep on Joseph's neck. It says they talked with him, which, by the way, if you remember way back to chapter 37, is an improvement. For a while, they wouldn't even talk to them or talk to him. They hated him so much. They're at least talking with him, but they're probably still too astounded and startled to show all that much emotion. Because uh, this, this is quite a game changer here. This guy's Joseph. And we note Pharaoh's response, and we won't spend a lot of time on it, but in verses 16 through 20, we see Pharaoh, and, and now Pharaoh is a title and not a name, and this Pharaoh is quite a bit different than the Pharaoh Moses is going to encounter some 400 years later. That guy was a real jerk. This guy, he seems very thoughtful and very friendly, Go, get them, and take wagons, and bring everybody. Make your travel easy, and leave all your stuff behind, because I'm going to give you the best of everything here. And obviously, he holds Joseph in high esteem. And, and he's saying this, remember, in the midst of a famine. Leave everything. I'm going to give you the best of what we have. And, and he's saying that when it's a famine. There's not much there to begin with. And when we look at how this story unfolds, and, and, and I, I stop here for just a second and, and think about what's going on, and I, I'm sometimes amused uh, when you'll see a, an athlete after a big win, they, they win a game and it, it's a big win, or, or maybe uh, there's an awards show, whether it's actors or singers or, or whatever, and they'll win the award, or they'll win the, the, the trophy, and then they'll say, oh, I'm speechless. Oh, wow, I, I, I can't, this, this is great, I, I'm, I'm speechless. And part of me understands what they're saying. You know, it's a big win, and they've worked really hard, and, and yeah, they're overjoyed. And So I can see them being, you know, speechless on one level. But another part of me thinks, but you knew someone was going to win this game, right? I mean, this can't be a total shock, can it? You were nominated for this award. There was a possibility you were going to win, right? But when we look at the brothers, this is not a possibility. This is nowhere on their radar. This, this is truly shocking. Truly leaving them speechless at times. But they do follow orders. 
uh, Israel's sons. They'll follow the orders in verses 21 uh, through 24. There's no test this time. Uh, Joseph loads them up with gifts. Interestingly enough, uh, one of the gifts that he gives to all the brothers is clothes in verse 22. And, and uh, the Hebrew, it's kind of an outer raiment type thing, uh, an outer wrap, if you want to say that. And that's interesting because if you remember back to chapter 37, one of the things that caused a great deal of problems was when Jacob gave Joseph the robe. And the brothers hated that. That was one of the reasons they wanted to kill him and sell him into slavery. And here we have this peace offering and he gives them the same type of thing, but he gives Benjamin much more. And the brothers don't seem to care. They're changed. And then he, he mentions now, don't quarrel on the way. And there's actually, in the Hebrew, there's actually a few different options of, of what he's saying there. Um, one of them might be that he is saying, now play nice. I know how you guys are. So really, just don't get any fights and try to make this as peaceful as you can. That's part of it. Uh, it could also mean uh, don't, don't fear. You know, don't, don't be worried about uh, robbers um, and don't have second thoughts. It could also mean don't have second thoughts about returning. It's kind of a broad word. And it's, I don't think those meanings are mutually exclusive. I think it's all one thought that he is trying to say. Look, get along, go in peace, come back as soon as you can, don't worry about anything, this is all, it's all going to be okay. Well, they get back to their father in verses 25 through 28, and Jacob, uh, it says his heart goes numb, as you can imagine, here's this son that he thought was dead, in fact, he had proof that the son was dead, he had had that robe that he had given him, and there was blood on it, well, some animal got him, and, he, and he's dead, uh, so uh, he goes numb, but then later on his spirit revives, and he will go see this son that he thought was dead. And we'll talk more about Jacob in weeks to come. But, but let's just take a look at, at this story and, and think of the brothers as they are going back to Jacob. And you can almost imagine one of the brothers uh, saying, you know what, someone should write this story down. What a wacky story this has been. And that this guy, this Zaveneth uh, Paniah, he turns out to be Joseph. Wow, what a twist. Someone should write it, and then we'll throw that in at the end. And this is going to be one of the great stories ever. And it would explain why these goofy things were happening and how this guy knew our ages and why he needed to see Benjamin. And it all makes sense. What a great story. And he's right. He would be right if he had said that. But when the story gets written, that's not a twist for us. We've known all along who Joseph is. That's been part of the story because the Holy Spirit doesn't want us to be guessing who this person might be or why he's doing the things he's doing. The Holy Spirit has a much grander story to give us. In this, in this story of Joseph. And our mystery or our dilemma, if, if you want to use that term, is, is more complex even. It's a little deeper. It's way beyond guessing, you know, who did it, a Scooby-Doo type thing. We've got a, a deeper uh, thing to consider here. This, this 
relationship between what God is doing and what the brothers have done. And, and I'll just quote Gordon Wenham here. He's a, a great uh, biblical theologian. And, and he says this, and I quote, the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility is a theological mystery that is something ultimately beyond human comprehension. Mysteries make us uncomfortable, and thus there is always a temptation to rationalize them. That is, to modify one belief to make it more compatible with the other. And what he's saying here is we have these two uh, ideas. The sovereignty of God, who's been controlling all things, but then we have these brothers who have been sinning along the way. What's their responsibility? Or is their sin okay? Because God used it for something good. How do we balance that? And, and we can go to a couple of different extremes. We see it in the world around us, and sometimes uh, we, we play it in our mind a little bit. One thing we can do to, to, to rationalize it is, is to downplay the sovereignty of God a bit. And say, well, there are certain actions that fall outside of, of what God can do, outside of God's control. And usually this pops up when there's fear or a certain amount of uncertainty. And we think, well, maybe that's falling outside of God's control and I will have to do something about this. It weakens our faith, and you'll notice it a lot when it weakens your prayer life. If God really isn't in control, well, then I probably should be acting rather than praying. So we can go that way. Well, the other extreme we can go to is to say, well, since everything is, is predestined by God and he's control of everything, well, then I don't really have to answer for my acts because... Well, God's in control, and, and he'll use whatever I do. You can excuse sin. Well, God made me like this, and I like my sin, so if this is how he made me and I want to do this, then he's just going to have to deal with that. And then we get to that point, as we were going through Isaiah in prayer meeting, you can call evil good and good evil because... Well, you know what? I'm not really responsible. God put me here. God made me like this. And we can go too far that way. But Wenham, as he goes on, he said that Joseph's story and the rest of Scripture, we could quote Scripture all day, insists that divine sovereignty and human responsibility are both true. The sovereignty is very clear here. Joseph saying, it wasn't you that put me here, but God put me here. Yet human responsibility is also affirmed. To quote Wenham again, that God used the brother's hatred to send Joseph to Egypt does not, according to Genesis, excuse the hate. The story spends most of its time portraying the cost of this hatred to the whole family. Though Genesis emphatically states that God uses the sins of Joseph's brothers for good, it nowhere excuses their sins or pretends they can be forgotten. Rather, they need to be acknowledged and repented of. 
And that's why scripture is always talking about the, the fruits of the Spirit. And Peter in 2 Peter tells us to increase in, in faith and in self-control and in godliness and, and in love. And, and those passages, be holy. Strive for holiness. Another glaring example of the two ideas of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility is found uh, with Jesus. With, when he's with his disciples, the night he's arrested in Luke twenty two twenty two, Jesus tells them, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Jesus' death was determined. But Judas is completely responsible for his greedy actions and selfish actions. And I also mentioned there's that idea of, of the remnant. That word in, in the ESV and in, in a lot of uh, translations gets used 83 times. The very first time is in this passage when Joseph mentions it, that God is saving a remnant. And the last time is in Romans chapter 5 when Paul writes, so too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by God. See, God is, is keeping a people for himself. And we do have this little tension here, God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And when we put these doctrines together, they are meant to encourage us. Because what we find in this is that our well-intentioned, though very imperfect works at times, in this very, very imperfect world, can be used by God. We don't have to let it stop us that we can't be perfect all the time. It does matter how we live, and God leads us into holiness, but for those times we stumble, and for those times that we have stumbled, we have that confidence that God can use that. He's not giving up on us. He's still at work saving his people. And we have that Savior who died on a cross to forgive our sins and lead us back on the path of righteousness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your loving kindness. We thank you for leading us into righteousness, for calling us to be holy. We thank you for being a gracious and merciful God who forgives our shortcomings. And try as we may in our stumbles, you will lift us back up and assure us that we are still your sons, still your daughters because of Christ, and that you can still use us and what we do for your glory. We thank you for your steadfastness. And we ask that you'll continue to build us up, that we will follow your paths. 
into all eternity with you. Through Jesus Christ, amen. Now, if you will, turn to hymn 377. We'll stand and sing verses 1 and 4 of Jesus, I, my cross, have taken.